As you know, we've been coming through this chapter as we've been coming through the whole book of 2 Corinthians, focusing on ministry, getting ready for what we want to do after the first of the year of opening up a ministry here, basically a people ministry where we train uh, a, a number of people to be able to really work and help people uh, even more than we already have. We have a number of people that really work through the ministry here and do a superb job, and we want to keep adding to that. It's part of your growth process getting you to a place where ultimately ministry becomes the baseline of your life. And the ministry we know now is working with people. And you remember the first week we examined this chapter, I told you that the bottom line of fellowship with God has to be with truth. And that was the first week we talked about that fellowship in its lowest common denominator, the baseline is our fellowship with truth. When it starts with that, and the truth of God's Word is in our lives, then we have that fellowship. And I talked about that truth as the single most important aspect of God uh, and the Word of God. And without truth, then everything about God and His Word is just pretty much like everything else in life. It's, it isn't worth the paper that it's, it's written on. So uh, truth is absolutely important. Then you remember the second week... <clears throat> I showed you the 10 things. Once we start our fellowship with truth, then I showed you as you develop it and you grow, I showed you the 10 things that we as Christians need to be in fellowship with. And we talked about those in much patience, uh, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in strikes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watching, in fasting. And I showed you in that particular section that the key word there is the word in. These are the things we need to be in fellowship with. And then the third week, which was last week, I showed you, in the third section, I showed you nine areas by which you maintain and keep your fellowship and develop it. It's one thing to have a fellowship with God. It's something else to have a foolproof system in your life that you never lose that fellowship. And yeah, we are to stay in fellowship with through these things, but the nine things I gave you last week are the nine things by which we maintain that fellowship. You remember I used the example of, of how you develop a, a relationship uh, in dating. And, you know, when you, when you want to uh, find a spouse, you got to go where uh, single people are. And you meet people through work, through church, or through your social uh, endeavors, whatever. And uh, you find somebody, and maybe somebody, if you're a gal, somebody asks you out. Or if you're a, a, a guy, you, you ask the lady out. And, uh, and you wound up getting married. And it, all relationships start that way. But my point was this. If you don't ever take that relationship past that first date, if you don't ever develop it, cultivate it, if you don't ever bring that thing to the point where it really, uh, uh, you, you pursue it in developing it, nothing ever comes of that. And I told you that the three vital areas were lordship, person has to be saved, uh, fellowship, the, the things that uh, you do together, and then relationships and how relationships build it. I also showed you that when you do get married, if you ever get married, <clears throat> those three areas are the same key three areas. And uh, they just take on a little uh, different perspective. Lordship means that you're both saved and you both have your own personal relationship with the Lord. Fellowship is the fact that uh, you, uh, you have your time in the Word of God uh, uh, with each other and you do things together. And then, of course, relationship. No fellowship or relationship in marriage without those three areas. And those are the key three groupings of things that you have to develop in your life. When you keep developing those things... And through the relationship, you develop the fellowship. Uh, it, it just keeps on going. And I told you also that in your relationship with Christ, it's the same thing. Christ is the bride. We are the bridegroom. And the earthly aspect of marriage, we know from Ephesians chapter 5, <clears throat> is nothing more than a picture of the heavenly one that we're all headed to when the Lord comes back. And I showed you that the same three areas, lordship, fellowship, and relationship, are, are the key to not only having a relationship with truth, then having fellowship with the things of the Lord, but then through the relationship, maintaining that fellowship and developing that uh, relationship. Your life with Christ as a Christian should be a steady process of growth. Maybe some of you grow faster than others. Maybe some of you get places quicker than others. It doesn't really matter as long as you're growing and you're going in the right direction. 
The thing that you never want to do with a child of God is two things. One, stand still with the Lord or move backwards. You always want to be moving forward. And uh, today I want to I want to look at the end result of everything that we've talked about. When you begin to build a relationship and fellowship with truth, and you take that and you develop your fellowship with God, and then through that you have a relationship, and by those relationship things you continue to maintenance your faith and grow in the Lord and have all the things that God wants you to do, there's an end result that happens in your life. And if you're saved here this morning, every child of God ought to have this as the goal that you'll want to get to. Fortunately, most of God's people never do. And I want to show you the direct result of your fellowship and then your relationship and then through your lordship what it will produce in your life. Um, And this is where you really become effective for Christ in ministry. But again, it's a development process. It's something that no two people will ever get the same uh, at the same time. But it has to be in your life. You have to come to the place where you continue to grow and you develop yourself and get these things in your life. So we've seen a process. We've seen now the, the, that the baseline is your fellowship with truth. We now then, through that truth, have seen the, rela- the fellowship that you have with the things that you're to be in fellowship with. Through that process, you build a relationship with Christ. Now, today, once you go through that process, I want to show you what is going to make your Christian life different. I'm going to show you today, based on those three sections in this great chapter that's a great teaching chapter, what makes the difference in a Christian's life, or should I say should make the difference in a Christian's life. Now, the Christian life should be a paradox. The Christian life should be a mystery. I I don't mean the fact that you keep it to yourself and don't tell everybody about it. I'm not talking about that. But your life as a Christian should be unexplainable. People should see things uh, different in you. When the world reacts one way to a terrible situation, a Christian should react another way. And the difference between how we react is the difference that Christ has made in our lives. Because people will see that. People watch people who claim to be Christians. And I think the the effectiveness of your life and my life in Christ simply, for the most part, comes down to this. Probably very little about what we say, though telling people and witnessing to people is very important. But I think that that has a very little impact on people's choices for Christ. I think the thing that really impacts people is to see a life in a person that is contrary to everything the way the world goes. I think that the contrast between what the world does and what a Christian does, how the world views things and how a Christian views it, how how the world responds to something where a Christian responds to it, when it's different, when it's totally, completely, and unexpected, I think that's what people see, and that's what God uses, and they come to the conclusion that, yeah, there is something different about you. You know, something different about all of us is not what we talk because we can talk anything. And you know as well as I do, there's some people out there that are great talkers that can sell you anything, anytime, anyplace, anywhere. The real difference, bottom line in your life and my life, of what really Christ has done and changed in our lives takes place when everything falls apart. And everybody over here is looking and going crazy, and you over here are holding the line because you've got the principles and the promises. I've told you many times that one of the greatest ways to learn the Bible is by contrast. That's an incredible way because the Bible says God is light, the devil's darkness. And the Bible basically is built around from Genesis 1, light versus darkness. And because of that great concept, everything in the Bible that you can learn that is any magnitude will always be a contrast. It'll show you the difference between what right is and what wrong is, what light is and what darkness is. And God shows us the things that are different, how they're opposite, and we learn from that. And yet, simply put, God's way of uh, thinking and looking at things in life uh, is totally different than our way of thinking. And that's why contrast is so important in your life and my life, not just in learning the Bible, but the way we live our lives. 
Because the Bible says, Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8 and 9, a familiar passage, it basically says, God's thoughts are not my thoughts. God's ways are not my ways. And the world thinks one way, the world looks at things this way, and when a child of God thinks the other way and looks the other way, you know what it forms? It forms a contrast. When I preach funerals, and I know there's a thousand there's a thousand funeral messages in the Bible as you could preach, but when I preach a funeral, almost, almost without exception, I'll, I'll use what I know to be true to help me. Because when you do funerals, it's always a tough time. And I think funerals are probably one of the greatest, greatest opportunities uh, to get the Word of God out and to get into people's lives and let the Holy Spirit of God do stuff. I've had funerals where I've had eight or nine people raise their hand and they got saved. I've had funeral where one time I did for a young gal that died years and years ago, and I got up the end of that thing, and I was still pretty young and all of this, and God was just beating me up to give an invitation. Well, you don't give invitations in funerals. And I'm up there, and I felt like I, I said, I said, I feel like I ought to almost give an invitation today. I don't even know why I said that. The moment I said that, the lady down in the front jumped up, ran over to the organ, and started playing just as I am. <laughs> she made the decision for me. We must have had five or six people saved that morning, that young girl's funeral. When I preach a funeral, I try to use what I know. I think that's good advice for all of us. I think we learn a lot of things about the Bible. We learn a lot of things in the Bible. But I think our failure many times is in situations we don't use what we know. If I know that people are more sensitive at a funeral, if I know that the greatest way to, to reach somebody is by a contrast, then why would I pick some other domain by which to give them? So I always preach on Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1, 2, and 3. It's one of the greatest contrasts in the Bible. He starts out by saying that the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. Now, that's a contrast. And that's totally not the way everybody thinks. That's totally not the way the world thinks. And then he says this, and this is always my text. He says this, it's better to go to the house of mourning than it is to the house of feasting. For he says, for this is the end of all men. And the living will lay it to their heart. And see, I use that. And I, I, I build it up and I bring it along and I, and, I, and I take that verse and basically inject it into the crowd. But what I do is I just take that simple contrast. Nobody likes to be in a funeral home. Nobody likes to be here today. Nobody really wants to be here. But yet the Bible says it's better for us to be here today in the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Now, why is that? And then the rest of the verse. For this is the end of all men. You're going to die someday. And there's no greater time that people think about death because they don't want to think about it when they're forced to go to a funeral and they look at the object lesson in the casket and you preach it. That's a contrast. That's contrast. And the end result of our fellowship and our relationship with God should be a contrast that the world can't miss. It's what makes you different. It's what makes the world look at you instead of the situation. It's what draws the attention to you and then through you to Christ. Did you ever notice that everybody in the Bible, and you probably didn't ever thought about it. I really never thought about it to this week till I started putting this thing together. Did you ever notice everybody in the Bible that really had it together was a contrast, had a contrast in their life with the people in the world system? I mean, there's, there's hundreds of them, obviously, but there's three obvious ones that come to mind. Paul's the first one. Paul wrote this book, and he wrote 10 or 11 more, if you give him credit for Hebrews. Uh, and he was loved by many, used, by, uh, used today uh, in thousands of sermons across this country. Every Sunday, people make reference to the books that he wrote. Yet many in his day hated him, thought him a deceiver, thought him mad, insane. And at one point... Paul, the beloved apostle, loved by millions, was killed as a heretic. Over there in Acts 21, 24, when he stand before King Agrippa in that great uh, presentation where he laid out the gospel, Festus says, he says, Paul, he says, you are beside yourself. He says, much teaching has made you mad. You see, there was a crowd that loved him. There was a crowd that knew he was God's man. And then there was a crowd that hated him and despised him and wound up killed him. Contrast contrast. 
The next obvious one is Jesus himself. In his day, he was loved by many. Today, he's loved by millions. Down through the centuries, no other man probably impacted our world and is more loved. We got a hymnal there that's got over 500 songs about one man. And you could go to a Christian bookstore and probably buy another 100 hymnals that's got that many in them and never cross the same throng twice. Never has a man impacted and changed the course and the direction of planet Earth more than the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I say it all the time, and I used to say it when I was a young man preaching. He's the only man in the world who never did anything wrong to anybody. And yet he's a man that most people don't want anything to do with. You know why? Because he represents a contrast. He was loved, yet he was hated. He was adored, yet he was despised. And he too was killed by the people who hated him. No other man in history has been more loved and yet more hated, I guess, than the Lord Jesus Christ. The only man that I know of in the history of the world that whole nations <laughs> take a stand against. Some loved him so much to go to the ends of the earth to serve him. Some hated him so much they go to the ends of the earth to kill anybody who did follow him. That's a contrast. And the third one's obviously the Word of God. I mean, no other book on this planet in 7,000 years of man's history has been more loved or probably yet more hated. Somebody said one time years ago, the Bible is more powerful than any atom bomb that was ever created. Somebody says, well, what do you mean? I don't understand that. How could a Bible be more powerful than an atom bomb? He says, well, it's simple. He says, he says, I know of 20 countries right now who outlaw the Word of God. I don't know one country that outlaws an atom bomb. The Bible's powerful. And, and here's the problem with you and me. Everybody in that Bible that was worth his salt, that ever did anything for God that ever amounted to anything, had a contrast. And the problem today in churches and Christians' lives is there is no contrast. The Christian world today has blended in with the world. We blended in with everything the world has. I mean, we don't want to offend anybody in our preaching. We've taken the music and we blended it with the world. We've taken the holy word of God and blended it with the world. We've taken our church services and made them contemporary and made them up one with the world. We've taken our preaching and taken all of the fire and all of the thing about preaching about sin and all the negativity that needs to be preached today, and we've made it all positive. Instead of being the contrast to the world, uh, there's really uh, no difference today. There is no difference between the world and Christianity today, and sadly, uh, with God's people. So our lives, our lives should be that same contrast as Paul, as Christ, and as the Word of God. And the right fellowship and building the right relationship through the right lordship will always produce that contrast that we're going to talk about today. Now let's read our text again in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll pick it up where we've always picked it up and we'll come down through here. We're going to be focusing on verse 8, 9, and 10 today. But let's go ahead and read uh, what we've read the last couple of weeks. But in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watching, in fasting. And then verse 6 is where we were last week. By pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness, and on the right hand and on the left. We went through all that last week. Now here's where we're going to be today. By honor and dishonor. See, that's a contrast. By evil report. And good report. That's a contrast. As deceivers, and yet true. That's a contrast. As unknown, and yet well known. As dying, and behold we live. As chastened, and not killed. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, and yet possessing all things. Now, Father, help us today. We love you. And we ask you to help us to see this great truth. This is probably one of the greatest chapters in all the Bible for your people. Understanding that our fellowship fundamentally starts with truth. And then goes in and grows and develops into the sufferings of Christ. And then through that into a relationship with Christ. And then right on down the line. And yet this is the end result today. This is what our lives should be. Uh, no matter what we say or what we like or what we don't like or who we like or who we don't like or what we like about the preaching or don't like about the preaching, at the end of the result, we should have a contrast to the world in our lives. And if we don't, 
then we have some issues. Help us today. Help us, Father, to take these and to use them and to give us all the honor and glory, and we'll give it to you, and we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, you want to learn these nine contrasts uh, because these are the end result of our lives when our fellowship, relationship, and lordship is in the right place. I'm going to go through each of one of these and talk to you about them in a, in a, in a kind of a quick manner, but enough that you'll get it. Now, the first one's found in verse 8, and he says simply this, by honor and dishonor. You see, that's a contrast. Now, you will have people in your ministry that you work with down through the years who truly love you and respect you. You'll have people that uh, you have helped, people that you have won to Christ, people that you have brought through and went through some hard times with. They recognize God using you in their life. They understand that uh, you're a God's man and God or God's women, and they put you, if God used them in your world, they'll, they know how important you are to where they're at and how they got there. I mean, the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, it says, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. Now, that's a great verse. Many people are confused where it says, Let them that labor in the word be worthy of double honor. What does that mean? It means that when somebody teaches you the Bible, when somebody invests your life, uh, their life into your life, and somebody takes the time and gets all this together and lets God use them, they're worthy of a double honor. They're worthy of honor now because they're God's man or God's woman who's laboring in the Word of God to teach you the Bible and doctrine. <clears throat> so they get honor here for that, but they also get honor over the judgment seat of Christ. In other words, uh, that, that's the right kind of honor. It's not glory they're looking for. They're honored because they're touching people's lives. And God honors that. They get honor from that. People know that you're somebody who, if you sit down with them in the Bible, they're going to make a difference in your life. I think that's one of the greatest things that that, uh, anybody could say about any of you. That when I sit down with him, or I sit down with her, or I sit down with that person or that couple, I know that they're going to make a difference in my life with the Word of God. That's a tremendous thing. That's the honor that he's talking about. But you also get honored at the judgment seat of Christ and the things that God has for you. So it's a double honor. Yet no matter how many people you reach, no matter how many people you help, and how much you do the ministry the right way to touch people's lives, you need to understand that there, needs to be a, there will be a contrast in your life. And it will always be those who have no use for you at all whatsoever. That's just the way it goes. The great absolute truth that you better get ready for and get a handle on because I tell you all the time not to take things personal because it doesn't matter how much you do for people. It doesn't matter. There will be those that honor you, but there will also be those who dishonor you. They have absolutely no use for you. All they do is see their own need, their own little pity party. All they do is see what they don't have. They don't see the opportunities that you give them, and they come away from it. You can spend the rest of your life trying to help them, and at the end of the day, uh, they're going to bring, uh, uh, they're going to talk about and dishonor you and not respect you uh, be, no matter what. And it's just the way that it is. You see, and here's the bottom line for that, and this is what you need to understand. When you teach the Bible, Labor and doctrine in the Word, as he said. When you teach the Bible, and the Bi- if the Bible is truth, then one of the attributes or the automatic things that happens when truth will always be p- preached is the fact that truth will always divide. Now, this is the fundamental problem in churches, good churches that preach the Bible. This is why people quit going to church, along with the five things that I told you, don't like preaching today, don't want to be around it today, is simply because the fundamental aspect of preaching truth and the Word of God is that, that it divides. When the Word of God is preached straight, hot, and true, when you get it right across the plate, waist high, where you can swing at it, it's going to divide where you're really at. It doesn't matter how nice the guy is. He doesn't matter if he's not talking about anything personal. He's just laying out basic fundamental truth about the Word of God. You're going to have that contrast divide people right there on the spot. And that's what it does. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, even into the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit. Then he says in verse 12, And is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Why, everything in that Bible, when God did it, that's the way he did it. 
God is the greatest truth anywhere in the Bible. God always divides before he puts anything together. You don't go four verses in Genesis where he divided the light from the darkness, and that sets the theme for the rest of the Bible. He divided Noah from the world. He divided Abraham from his family. He divided Jacob. He divided Joseph from his brethren. He divided Israel from Egypt. He divided Israel from the other nations. And when you got saved, he divided your soul from your flesh. You know why? God always divides before he gets anything done. You know how he does that? That book right there. That book will form the first contrast in your life by honor and by dishonor. You'll have people who love you because you teach the book. You'll have people who despise you because you teach the book. Hey, get used to it. It is what it is. It's a contrast that just comes along with being in the ministry. Now, he goes on and he says, and it's real simple. People who, who have no need or people who have no desire for the truth in their life will simply have no need for you in their life if you preach the truth. I've seen them come to church, and they love this place. Oh, this is a wonderful place. Eight months later, it's, it's the worst place on the planet. You know why that? And we haven't changed. We're still preaching the same message the same way. I certainly haven't become an apostate. I'm preaching the same things. But it, it, it's the fact that, oh, you know, you know what has happened in that process? Truth has gotten into your life. There's some things in your life you don't want to change. And that truth suddenly takes a wonderful place that you're at and makes it a terrible place that you're at. That's what truth does. Thank God for truth. I think it'd be a terrible thing for somebody as miserable as some of you to stay here forever. Now, I'm serious. I'm serious. I'm telling you what, you ain't got the joy, joy, joy down in your heart, then go to another church. I I had a church in mind, but I wasn't going to say. I know you thought what I was going to say. I know you thought I was going to say that. Don't be sorry. I love it. You're not going to another church, are you? No. Tell them. Tell them. I'm not going to another church. All right. Even if I threw you out, you'd still sneak back in, wouldn't you? Okay. Ah, well, it's a nasty job, but somebody's got to do it. You know, it's the way it goes. If you're a ministry-orientated Christian, say that ten times real fast. If you're a ministry-orientated Christian, you will always have that problem. People do not want to be reminded of what they're not doing in most cases. That's contrast. That's a contrast that should be in your life today if you're a child of God in fellowship with Christ. You know why? Because that's what his life was. And your life should be like his, by honor and dishonor. A contrast. Now, the second one. By evil report and good report. Now, in this one, Paul is a great example. And there's lots of others in the Bible, but we all know Paul. And they were those that loved him and spoke well of him. And you ought to, sometime when you have time, you ought, to, you ought to read Acts chapter 20, the whole chapter. That's one of, to me, Acts chapter 20 is one of those monumental places in the Bible. It's where Paul, now, it's where your Bible ends, really. It's where Acts chapter 20 is where the New Testament stops. I know you got books after that, but if you don't know why that is, come and see me and I'll help you figure it out. But Acts chapter 20 is a monumental place in the Bible. It's right before Paul goes down to Jerusalem. And it's the last thing that he does when in that chapter he says goodbye to the church at Ephesus and the people in that church. It's one of the most heart-rendering, sobering things that you'll ever read in your life. He basically, through that chapter, gives them a six-point outline of what the church uh, should be doing. And it is a great outline for any church. But they love Paul. They, 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 they had nothing but good to say about Paul. And in Acts chapter 20, verse 36 and 38, it says, And when he had thus spoken, when he had given him everything that he said, Oh, it was a, it's a heartbreaking chapter. He kneeled down and prayed with all of them. And I can visualize in my mind. I know, I know that when people in my life that were, were instrumental, and we got separated, and they went their way, and they had to go mine. I know that feeling. I remember when Mel Sabaka went to New York, boy, and I was left in Canton. My heart 
I broke so bad, I felt like I cried so hard, it was coming out my mouth. And I remember when he kneeled down and we prayed for that last time. I know what they must have felt. And it says, he kneeled down and prayed with them all. And they wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake, that they should see his face no more. And they accompanied him unto the ship. What a terrible thing. They loved him. These people spoke well of him wherever he went. I tell you what, for the rest of his life and their life, they talked about Paul and they brought about a good report. Ah, but look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10.10. People in the church at Corinth, not everybody was that way. By evil report and good report. That contract was in Paul's life and ought to be in your life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 10, some of the people in the Corinth saying about Paul, for his letters say they are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. Those were saved people. Those were people that he won to Christ. Acts chapter 24, when he's there before uh, the, the, the Jews and there uh, Ananias, who was the high priest, had hired Tertullius, who was a, a, a kind of a prosecutor who's going to prosecute Paul. And boy, he says about the great apostle, he says, For we have found this man a persistent fellow and a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes who also hath gone about to profane the temple whom we took and we have judged according to our law. Not everybody loved him. Not everybody gave a good report. Let me tell you something. People, no matter how good you are, and how bad, how good you try to be, and how try you minister to people and try to help people, there will be people in many cases, if not most cases, or at least half the cases in your life, will bring an evil report about you. They did it to Paul, they did it to Christ, they did it to every man and woman in that Bible that ever did anything for God, and you might as well mark it down, they will do it to you. Oh, we get it all the time in this church. Oh yeah, you go to a cult. See, you're a cult here this morning, if you don't know that. You're a cult. Oh, yeah, you teach heresy. Oh, yeah, you think you're right and everybody else is wrong. As I said, it's a nasty job, but somebody has to do it. Well, you get people down there and you just brainwash them. Yes, by washing every generation by the Word of God. We certainly do. You're just following a man. Where's the Kool-Aid? This place is a cult. And what? That ain't even a real church. They meet in a basement of a warehouse. With a furniture store and a mattress store and a fly shop and a tuxedo place and an eBay place down on the corner and a craft shop up at the end. What kind of church is that? And what really goes on down there in that basement? I've had people in my life, they always want to go around and say, uh, when they always bring a bad report, when there ain't nothing or a bad report about, they always go like this. Well, I know some things about that place. Well, what are they? Well, I just can't tell you. Well, what are they? I want to know. I'm going there. Oh, no, I, I, I just can't tell you. But there, there's some really some things going on there. You know what, sweetheart? If you lived back in the 30s and you auditioned for the Wicked Witch of the West and the Wizard of Oz, you'd have got the Wicked Witch of the North, South, East, and West. Yeah, what goes on down here? Well, let's see what goes on. What's really going on down here? Yeah, well, let's see. 40, 50 people got saved last year. That's what went on down here. Marriages got put back together. About 20 of them. That's what goes on down here. The Bible taught us the absolute truth of the Word of God. That's what goes on down here. People get help with their family problem, their kids problem, couples with kids, whatever the case may be. They get discipled. They teach people. They work with them. That's what goes on down here. Oh, yeah. And here's a terrible one. We fed and clothed 800 people a month last year that would have never had food or would have never had clothes. And we worked one of the most premier organizations in town that basically turned their whole organization over to us because they trust us. Instead of going to, and, and what did you do again? A little louder. I didn't hear you. What is it that you do versus what we do? You say, you don't talk about those things. You don't brag about things like that. You just do them. And what did you do? What are you doing for the Lord? Please, louder, I can't hear you. I missed it. 
Instead of having Sunday night service, we go do God service on Sunday night. That's what it's supposed to be. Too many churches just sit around and get a lot of things and a lot of things, and they never go out and do anything with what they get. But it'll bring a contrast in your life by evil report and good report. There'll be those that say, man, we couldn't make it without them. And the others will always say, oh, you better watch that place. Yeah, you better watch it because you come here and the Holy Spirit of God will watch right down your aisle where you're sitting. You better watch it. Contrast. Hey, enjoy it. Make friends with it. It's always going to be there. I, 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 I think it's hilarious when, uh, when people uh, give evil reports about some of you folks. And what, what, I know what some of you do. And I know some of you make mistakes and some of you do stupid things. Who doesn't? I'm always leery of people who want to point out everybody else's problems but never want to point a finger back and talk about what theirs are. People like that bother me. Number three. How light it is today. It's just light in here. <laughs> Number three, as deceivers and yet true. You know, this one's a, this one's a, uh, this one's a tough one because this one's basically true. Uh, Bible Christianity has gotten a really bad rap today. The goal of ministry is to be true and honest, open with the people you deal with. You know, an open door policy. I showed you when we came through 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, what the ministry should be. He said, therefore, seeing we have this ministry. See, this one here. As we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. See, that's, what, that's, the, that's the areas of ministry that it is today. 99% of them are right here. Hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in, walking in craftiness or handling the word of God to sleep. But what the ministry should be, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But today, most people, even though you're true, you preach the truth and you do uh, preach the word of God and, and in light of all the phony stuff that go on there, it's, it's ruined Christianity. You know, people look at, and they look at and heard the terrible stories about Jim and Tammy Baker, Oral Roberts and his son Richard, Jimmy Swaggart, Reverend Ike, Joe Olstein, the 700 Club, you know, Reverend Jesse Jackson, Reverend Wright, all of that stuff. In my day growing up, it was T.T. Osborne out of Oklahoma. It was Ernest Ainsley out of Akron, Ohio. It was Rex Humbert out of Akron, Ohio. And it was Catherine Kuhlman out of Norman, Oklahoma. And they were four of the biggest phony frauds you ever saw in your life were on the radio and all they wanted was money. All these guys want is money. And people get burned in churches like that. People will go to church when they're already suspect of churches and they'll hear some pastor get up there and talk about, you know, give a 15 minutes of Bible and 40 minutes we need your money. That's why the first thing you hear in our mouth when you come here is keep your money. If you're a visitor, we don't want your money. We don't need your money. Go out and buy you a nice lunch. Take your wife, your kids, your husbands out and have a good time. We're not here for that. We want to give you something. Back in the 1920s, prohibition came into it. Prohibition used not to have to explain these kind of things, Pat, but now the young kids, let's watch. Watch, Pat. Get marked down the names. Son, you got a notebook and pen. You're right there. How many know what prohibition was? Let me see your hands. See? The young generation. Prohibition. This is probably hard for you to believe in the world we live in. But prohibition was uh, an act of Congress that forbid the selling of alcohol. In other words, you couldn't buy whiskey. It brought in the bootleggers, the Roaring Twenties. And prohibition was uh, the fact that, uh, that this country passed laws that it was illegal to have sell alcohol. You could get beer, I think, but you couldn't get, uh, couldn't get beer either. Oh, God. But you couldn't, have, you couldn't have any alcohol, according to Gary. Gary was alive back then. He knows these things. <laughs> Gary drunk beer in 1920. I believe it. <laughs> The fact that he was born in 1918 throws things off just a little bit, but anyway. <laughs> but you couldn't, have, you couldn't have any booze at all. <clears throat> that was brought into effect, basically, by the preaching of one man. 
back then the country was still soft and palatable to the word of God. And one man single-handedly through his public preaching uh, brought about the end of booze in America. His name was Billy Sunday. And Billy Sunday was a great evangelist. <clears throat> and he preached on booze and he preached on it. And boy, I mean, he had some hellfire sermons. He, he literally <clears throat> turned the whole country to put so much pressure on the government that the government came up and put a law in effect that prohibited any alcohol whatsoever. Now, they later repealed that, obviously, much to Gary's happiness. But, but, uh, but, but, but at the thing where at that time, they did it. One man, one man, one man. And I know Billy Sunday, but you talk about a good report and an evil report. When Billy Sunday died, they had his uh, funeral in uh, New York. In the, uh, he laid in state in Madison Square Garden. A New York Times reporter said that over a, a million people passed by his, his casket. And he said, I heard over and over, probably almost a million times, people just uttering out of their mouth, I wouldn't be where I'm at without that man. I'd be in hell if it wasn't for his preaching. I got saved by that man's preaching. Now, those are good reports, but boy, there were some bad reports on him. You know, everybody knew who Sinclair Lewis was? Sinclair Lewis made a movie back in the 20s and back in the, back in the 30s. Uh, really, I think it was in the 40s, probably. And Sinclair Lewis was an atheist. And Sinclair Lewis hated Billy Sunday with a passion. And Sinclair Lewis wanted to do everything he could to uh, ruin the image of Billy Sunday, so he made a movie with, uh, with Burt Lancaster. Somebody raise your hand if you know what the name of the movie is. Anybody know what the name of that movie was? Well, got one here, got one over here, well, only three of you. Nobody else knows the movie? Hold your hands up, Pat. You know what it is? You know what it is? You know, you know what it is? Anybody else know? It's on from time. John knows what it is. It's on from time to time. Next time it comes on, watch it. The name of it is Elmer Gantry. Yeah. Elmer Gantry. And Elmer Gantry, in that movie, was portrayed uh, as a, uh, a, a man who was a fornicator, a drunk, a cheat, manipulated people. He hooked up with a woman preacher, and together they fleeced the flocks from one end of the country to the other. And it was written in just one of the most terrible movies you ever saw in your life, and paints evangelism, and paints uh, Christianity and Christians. It's, it's the biggest joke and the biggest farce put out by a man who hated God, hated the preaching of the Word of God, hated Billy Sunday, and was a drunken fornicator and, and tried to destroy Billy Sunday. So he made a movie, supposedly about this Elmer Gantry that everybody knew he was talking about Billy Sunday. Good report, evil report. Just the way it is. Uh, you know, uh, today we don't need any more Sinclair Lewis's. We have our own Christian leaders that enforce the very thing that Sinclair Lewis tried to do in his movie. I mean, uh, the devil makes sure no matter how straight and true you are, brother, that he'll have somebody paint you as a deceiver, even though you're true uh, to the Word of God. And sadly, for the most part, it's true. Like I said, you go to churches, these big churches, and all they do, I mean, somebody's got to pay for it. And all they do is get up there and they want your money. They talk about money. They talk about this. They talk about that. They'll give you 15 minutes of the Bible, 30, about 30 minutes of the Bible. I mean, how much they need money. And then it'll be the son of money. And then it'll be the son of give more money. You know, we need the money to build this building here. We need to build this here. We need to build that here. We need to do this. We need to do that. That's the way it works today. And people are tired of it. Contrast as deceivers and yet true. You see, you can't get into real ministry and not pick up these contrasts. Everybody in the Bible, whoever did anything for God, had them. And when it comes to the ministry, it's not always Mr. Nice Guy and Mr. Clean. All right, the fourth one. As unknown and yet well-known. And being in the ministry for 40-plus years, I, it's left some very strong impressions on me about certain things. I, I'm not somebody, when it talks about ministry, churches, preachers, and the way things go, I'm not somebody that does not know what he's talking about. I've watched this thing for 40-plus years, and it's left some very strong impressions. God's been good to me. He's put me into some unique circumstances that, that taught me and showed me and helped me learn some things, and sometimes I had to learn them the hard way, but I always learned them. And one of the things I saw in Christianity that I just despise is among pastors is, is this race to the top thing. I've seen pastors do everything they could to become the spiritual star in their city. We have in Christianity today, uh, and I'm talking in Baptist circles, we have what they call fellowships. And fellowships are a bunch of Baptist churches that get together for a fellowship. In other words, they, they have a central point 
Uh, the main one here in Kansas City is down in Springfield, Missouri. It's called Baptist Bible Fellowship. There's a West Coast Baptist Bible Fellowship. There's an East Coast Baptist Bible Fellowship. But every, every, every different geographical area of Baptist churches have fellowship that all the churches belong to. You have South Side Fellowship. You have the North Side. You have the East by West by Southwest East Fellowship. Yeah, they all got them. And they all have anywhere from between 100 to maybe 200, 300 churches in them. And they all elect the president. And they all go together for a big fellowship meeting once a year. And then they have little sub-pub fellowship things throughout the year. And it's all nothing more than a political mess. It's no different than the Democrats or the Republicans. It's just a big political game that everybody plays, that you'll be part of, that we all get what we dis and do this and do that. And we, we pick our favorites and we put these here, we do this here. Most of the time they come there and they fight and they squabble over things that have nothing to do with anything. Everybody wants to claw the way to the top. They all want to be president. It's like being the Pope, only you're not Roman Catholic. Everybody wants to be at the top. And it always goes to the big churches. The big churches rival back and forth. They get better and beautiful, more beautiful things. You know, we got a better. I mean, I saw it back in the 70s when Jerry Falwell redid his auditorium and put that big old white pulpit. looked like the great white throne judgment. When he did that, every Baptist church in Kansas City and around the country redid their auditorium just like Jerry Falwell and put one of those pulpits up there. It was like the status quo. Why? Because he was successful. He was big time. They got the idea that if you imitated what he did, that would make you as successful as he was. It doesn't work that way. It's all politics. It's all politics. The best, biggest churches today are not known for their preaching anymore. You all watch the the, uh, Grand Old Opry. Grand Old Opry's down in Nashville, Tennessee. Everybody watches that and everybody likes it. There's certainly nothing wrong with the Grand Old Opry. I like it myself. Uh, but the bottom line is this. Most people don't know that Grand Old Opry. Anybody know what, where the Grand Old Opry is in Nashville, what auditorium is held in? This is a question and answer today, and you're all failing. What is it? Ryman, Ryman Auditorium. You know Ryman Auditorium holds, the, holds it right now, but you know where Ryman Auditorium was built? It was built back in the 20s for Mordecai Ham as one of the greatest revival preaching places you ever saw in your life. And for 40 years before the, before the, the uh, uh, country western world ever got into that thing, Ryman Auditorium was a place of powerful preaching, people being saved, and the, and the south being turned inside out and upside down. Who knows that today? Incredible. What went on down there? And of course, it's, it, today it's, it's, it's people don't know. Churches today, they don't, they're not, people don't go to it for their, for their preaching. People are not drawn to it because of the Word of God. It's, 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 like the, it's like the Ryman Auditorium versus the Grand Old Opry. Going to church today is like going to Branson. You go down there for one reason. Oh, there's a lot of places to eat, but you know what you go to Branson for. You want to go to the best shows, and you walk down the strip or ride down the strip. Everybody who's anybody's got a show, and you've got to pick which one you want. That's how people pick churches today. What kind of show they're going to give me? The lights, the smoke, the music, the praise band. All the lights going down and the smoke coming up and all of the things that happen and the bands and the lights and all of the pastor emerging out on the platform like you have some potentate coming out uh, to all his subjects. That's the church. What a great show. Oh, no, no, no. Go to this one. They got bigger lights. They got a production process. They got a stage. They got studio lights. They got television cameras. That's where you go today. That's exactly where you go today. See, I grew up in that. I grew up in a church when I was a young guy where, uh, and the guy was a, was a pastor, was a good preacher. He could preach the paint off the walls, but he got into one of those systems where they got on television and they only had 40 minute television time. So now he had to relegate his sermon to 40 minutes. You had a bunch of lost people in your church. But you didn't care about that. You wanted to reach the mass of the media of Kansas City and be known as Mr. Tough Guy Preacher. So you had to curtail your message down to 40 minutes. I was there one day when a production guy came over putting on his makeup so he would look good on the TV camera. And they actually told him, you can't preach hard out there because if you start to sweat, your makeup will run. Well, I got some news for you, children. My makeup will not run this morning. You may run when I'm done preaching, but my makeup will not. You don't curtail what God gives you by a TV camera or a production schedule. You preach the whole counsel of God and you lay it out just the way it is. Don't worry about who likes it. I used to preach there when I got a little older. 
and it was still on TV. And when I would come up to preach, they tried and tried and tried and tried and tried to tell me, you got to stay within 40 minutes. You can't go over 40 minutes. I'd preach an hour to them suckers every time I was up there. It got so bad after they had me preach, they would just preempt me, put another sermon that he did four or five weeks on, and just turn the cameras off. That's my way of doing things, you see. I like that. Turn them suckers off. And I never wore any makeup either. You can't give an evil report about that. Truth of the matter is, these great big churches today, they were not built by the guys in charge. They were built on the backs of the little guys and gals, just like you, who never share in the glory on Sunday morning. They do all the work. He takes all the credit. That's how it works today. And in the Christian life, you need to work hard of not being known in this world of Christianity. And that's some real good advice for you. This church is not a member of any fellowship. We fellowship with the book God gave us. That's all the fellowship we need. You say, well, there's strength in numbers. Yeah, there is. And this is all the numbers that I need. Yeah, but you got to hang out with other churches. Why? I'm not getting into their politics. Yeah, but you got to vote on this guy to be president. He's going to, a president of the fellowship. He's going to change the fellowship. He ain't going to change nothing. One time they asked Mel Sabaka years ago, we were all fed up with the Baptist Bible Fellowship. It was worse that back then, 35 years ago. It's even worse now. And when somebody came to Mel, who was a great preacher at that point, and he said, Mel, why don't you start a fellowship and we'll break out of this one and we'll start one that just believes the Bible. You know what he told him? He said, why? In 20 years, this will be just like the other one. He was smart enough to know it didn't work. I come out of Canton, Ohio, the Canton Baptist Temple, and in there they got the Christian Hall of Fame. They started that because Canton was the football Hall of Fame, and Harold Henniger got the bright idea. It was a great idea to put the Christian Hall of Fame. You walk through that, and that church is probably twice the size of this parking, whole parking lot we, from corner to corner to corner. And you walk through there, and every, down there's all the pictures coming down through church history. One of the greatest things I think they ever did was put a painting up there in the middle of all that with some guy's face that you couldn't really see and you couldn't even tell and they just got a little thing down there next to Martin Luther and all these guys and it says the great unknown Christian. It is a picture to tribute to all the little guys that nobody ever knows. Nobody down here even knows they're alive but up in heaven they're well known. And let me tell you something, folks. For every George Whitfield, for every Sam Jones, for every Billy Sunday, for every Martin Luther, there are millions of men and women whose names will never fill the pages of the books of the great deeds for God. They will never be recorded in the annals of church history. But up in heaven, their name and their deeds ring a shout rejoicing down through the quarters of heaven. They're not known down here. That is unknown, but yet well known. Old Mel used to say, everybody, everybody, everybody today in the churches wants to be the main chandelier in the ballroom. He says, nobody wants to be the light bulb in the back porch. As unknown, yet known. I'll tell you right now, this church has no desire. I, as your pastor, have no desire to be any chandelier in the main ballroom. But I'll tell you what, we will be a light bulb on the back porch of Kansas City. That's what God's contrast. Then the fifth one. As dying, and behold, we live. Now, this is the great one. Every Christian should have this contrast in his life. The dying here is dying to the world, dying to self, dying to worldly pressures, all the things in our flesh that mess us up. Us dying to the world, and behold, we live, alive in Christ. This was the great theme of the book of Romans. If you remember when we came through Romans 5, 4, 5, and 6. Romans 6, 6 said, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Romans 6, 11 and 12 says, Likewise reckon yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Colossians 3, verses 1, 2 and 3 says, It says, If ye be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above and not the things of this earth, for ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ. Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. As dying to the world, and behold, we live every day unto God. You know, it means sacrificing the desire of self. 
In ministry, if you ever really truly get into ministry, and a lot of people just play around with it, if you ever get into the ministry, you're going to realize that in ministry you have to make sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. You're going to have to sacrifice your time. You're going to have to sacrifice time with your family. You're going to have to sacrifice your money. You're going to have to sacrifice everything in your life. And it's a very tenacious balance at best. You're going to have to sacrifice the personal things you want to do. In ministry, there's never a time when you can say, I'm done today. It's not a nine-to-five job. About the time you think it is, the phone will ring and your day will start over again, even if it's in the middle of the night. Now, when you do those things and those things come, I want you to remember this. The great comfort in that is God's keeping track of every sacrifice you make for him, and he'll not let it go unrewarded. You know, back in the book of Nehemiah, chapter uh, 3 and 4, as they three groups, they were going back there and they're building the wall. And I've told you many, many times, in fact, we went through a detailed study on how that's such a great picture of what we're trying to do in building a church. The wall was around the city. The wall represented their, the doctrine that we have that protects you, the people in this church, as the wall protected the city. And, and it there was one group that as you come down through there in chapter 3, verse 5, the Bible says it would, would not put their necks to the work of their Lord. They wouldn't do anything. And the word neck in the Bible is always connected with man's will, stiff-necked. And these people, you find them in churches all over the place. These are the kind of people that wouldn't do anything for the Lord. They're not going to put their neck on the line. They're not going to do one thing that's going to cause them what bins of discomfort in anything for God. Then you had a second group in verse 20. And this group, uh, the Bible says they worked earnestly. They did a good job, but they just did what was required. And then in verse 1, you got the group that says, then this group who worked on the sheep gate. Now, the sheep gate is where the sheep came in for sacrifice. And the Bible says they didn't just do the work. They sanctified the work. They set it apart. They understood that in ministry and doing and building something for God, you have to make the sacrifices that go along with it as dying, and behold, we live. Contrast. Dying to the things of this world, living for Christ. Then he says the sixth one, as chastened and not killed. Now this one shows you the difference of how God views an unsaved man and how he views and deals with Christians. You know, it's a a great verse in the book of Proverbs in chapter 4, verses 14 through 19. It says, Enter not into the path of the wicked, and go not in the way of evil men. Avoid it, pass not by it, turn from it, and pass away. For they sleep not, except they have done mischief, and their sleep is taken away unless they cause some to fall. Uh, And they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. Watch it. But the path of the just is as a shining light that shineth more and more unto a perfect day. The way of the wicked is as darkness. They know not at what they stumble. That's a great passage. The way of the wicked is as darkness, and they have no idea what they stumble over. Listen. The unsaved man is born. He lives his life. Sometimes he's cut down in the prime of his life when he's 19 or 20. Sometimes he lives his life out, and he lives to be 85, 90, 99 years old. End result's the same, hell in a lake of fire. But the Christian is not so, you see. Once you got saved, God takes a hand in everything in your life. And God, as a child of God, God will chasten you. God will deal with you, but he'll never treat you like the world. The unsaved man, he, gets, he grows up and he just, everything in life's a chance for him. He rules the dice on everything. He rules the dice on everything. And he, sometimes the dice comes up, he's okay. Sometimes the dice doesn't roll his way and he gets killed. But that's not the way it is for you and me. God takes a hand in your life. Everything about you, he wants to be there for you. And yes, we still do things that are wrong. We get out of the way of God. Oh, we all do. But when he does, and when we do, then the Bible says he chastens us. He chastens us. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, down through verse 11 is the great passage where it talks about no chastening. For the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. Nobody likes going through it. But it says afterward, it worketh and yieldeth the peaceable fruit of God. There's a purpose to it. Haggai chapter 1, verse 6 says that a man's life without God is like a bag with holes. 
He walks down through life gathering things, puts them in his bag, thinks he's got all kinds of things, but he never saw the bag's got a big hole in the bottom of it. And all his life, he just keeps throwing things in that bag. He's too stupid to know the bag's not getting any heavier. And he just keeps walking through life. And when he gets down to the end of his life, he thinks he's got it all put in the bag. He holds it up and it's all gone. You know why? Because life without God is a bag with holes. Chasing and not kill. He'll, he'll whip the fire out of you. He'll take you to the woodshed. He'll deal with you. But he won't treat you like an unsaved man. Number seven, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. You know, as a child of God, we'll go through sorrow. We will. We'll go through some tough times. I, I'm never going to promise you that if you become a Christian, if you are a Christian, that you won't have sorrow in your life. You will. But you'll have sorrow, but you'll have rejoicing. And as a child of God, we'll go through some sorrow, but for us, there's hope. You know, Paul, who wrote Romans chapter 5, verse 2, where he said, We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We sing the song on page 272 of the solid rock. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but only trust in Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. The unsaved man has no hope to rejoice in. Just an endless life of sorrow without any hope. You know, you see it a lot in saved person's funeral when a person dies who's a Christian. That's why I enjoy preaching a, a Christian's funeral. You see it all the time. And you see that person and you see the people grieving and their grief and their, their crying and their sorrow. But there's also joy because we as Christians, uh, we, we have hope and that hope causes us to rejoice. Paul, when he wrote 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he said in verse 13, but I would not have you ignorant brethren concerning them which are asleep. People that died. Let you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. Then he goes on and he says, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that when Christ comes back, he's going to bring the dead with him. And when he finally comes the whole thing down there, he says, wherefore, comfort one another with these words. You see, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. People see you handle situations differently. There's a contrast. Where they sorrow and they have no rejoicing, they sorrow, they have no hope, they sorrow, they have no answers, you sorrow, but yet you always rejoicing because you have the promises of the Word of God. Number eight, as poor, yet making many rich. You know, the great example of this is not other than Christ Himself. He's the model and the pattern for everything in our lives. As poor, yet making many rich. 2 Corinthians 8 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. He gave up everything for you. He left the, he left the presence of heaven. He left his deity behind. He left the crown of righteousness. He left everything at the throne and came down and took on the body of a human man. And he that was rich, became poor, that you and me, through his poverty, we might become rich. And you see, that's the difference between the riches of this world and the two riches that are found in that book, Luke chapter 16, 11, just happens to be 16, 11, the true riches that God has delivered unto us. You know, you can be broken down and flat broke and, and have lost everything you have on this earth, and still you're the most richest person on this planet. And I'd say that in America today, anyhow, that probably there's not 10 people in this country who understand what I just said. But it's coming. And you may get a chance to get it all figured out before the Lord comes back. This is why God's people are, are so depressed today. This is why God's people keep the drugstores open with Prozac and all the things that take away their life so they don't have to slow down their brains. They don't have to think about all of this and all of that. When all the reason they've got what they've got in their life because they have refused and failed to do for God what God has called them to do after they got saved. And they're spiritually broke and they're bankrupt and their bank's empty. As poor, yet making many rich. You know what? Every time you put out the Word of God, every time you win somebody to Christ, every time you invest your life in somebody else's life, you know what you're doing? You're taking somebody that may be spiritually bankrupt and you're, you're padding their account. You're filling their bank with the true riches. And that's the only thing that's going to get them through. We can get along without a house. 
We can get along without just about everything in life, but I'll tell you one thing you cannot get along with, and that's a relationship with God in this book right here. Then the ninth one, finally. As having nothing, yet possessing all things. Now this last one is obviously focused on the rewards and our millennial inheritance that we get when Christ comes back. And it basically takes the aspect of earthly possessions versus spiritual possessions. These contrasts, this contrast follows a mindset, understanding in your life and my life that, you know what, what is really the most invaluable thing that you have in your world? And I know we always think that's our house, our car, our bank account. You know, people are scared of what's happening in the economy and they're trying to put their money in gold and put their money in silver and buy all these commodities, you know, that when the world comes to an end and everything breaks down and the government folds up, you know, have something to barter with. Let me tell you something, that's about as foolish as you can. The same God who took care of you today is the same God will take care of you when the government falls flat on its face. The problem is you're not allowing to take care of you today, so you will not be ready when he has to take care of you there. That's how it works. It's not this life, my friend, that makes you, it's where you make the investment of your life. It's the next one to come. Well, these are the great contrasts, nine of them, of the Christian life. Your life and my life, this is the end result of having a relationship, having fellowship with God. This is what it produced. This is what makes you effective for Christ. This is what makes you, this is what makes you get to the place where God Uh, can use you in circumstances and situations. This is what will make people seek you out when they have tough times. This is what people will look to you because they have seen the contrast in your life. They see the way the world goes, they've seen the way their own life goes, and they see the way your life has went, and the contrast is so great, they say, I got to know what that difference is. And then you get a chance to tell them. These are the great contrast of the Christian life. They come into our life through fellowship. First of all, fellowship with God's truth. Second of all, through the fellowships of Christ's suffering. Thirdly, then, by building a relationship uh, with Christ, by developing our fellowship, and then we get to the place where our life, we live our life continually by a contrast to the thinking of this old world. People see it. It draws them to Christ. And by the contrast to your life, people come to Christ. Well, Mel Sabaka used to say, if your Christianity is not contagious, then your Christianity is contaminated. And we today have a contaminated Christianity. It's blended with the world. There's no contrast. There's no difference. We as God's people react to tragedies just like the lost world does. There's nobody standing up holding the Bible saying when the world falls apart, when your world comes apart, look over here. I got the light. I got the answers. Well, there's no stability in an unstable world. There's nothing in this Christian world today with men and women because they've lost the word of God. They've lost the contrast. We now become one with the world in everything that we do. What we need is God's people who will stand separate from the world. Let the contrast in their life bring people to the Lord Jesus Christ. Every head bowed and every eye closed.